Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. With the uh, quotation, part of the state motto that was on their flag, they lost at Waxhaw, preservando, which means persevere. So I think that's the best description of Colonel Buford and his men. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor John Settle discussing Colonel Abraham Buford's Virginia Battalion. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor, John Settle, and he'll be discussing uh, Abraham Buford's Virginia Regiment, a uh, very difficult study, very tough to track down. John did a masterful job of it. This is one of these great articles that you'll find here at the Journal of the American Revolution, written by a person who is on the ground in Virginia, formerly worked at Colonial Williamsburg, now a school teacher, uh, that really knows these details intimately. I really like talking to John a lot. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with John Settle. John Settle, thank you for joining us. It's glad to be back. Thank you. Tell us about your background. Um, so I'm uh, currently a teacher for Accomack County Public Schools, uh, but I worked for many years at Colonial Williamsburg, and a lot of my research dealing with the American Revolution is focused around the Virginia Continental and state troops that fight during the conflict and how their involvement may have affected certain parts of the war, different battles a little bit of their social history as well. What first drew your interest into this topic? Um, so the main one to write it is I first started, this kind of started when I was looking at the Battle of Waxhaw's, Waxhaw's Massacre story, and I see that you know there are survivors that come out of that engagement, including Colonel Buford himself. Um, when I, and what I started to notice was uh, despite many people saying that that unit never reorganized, I'm seeing different veterans, letters from officers that were clearly stating there was something that had survived um, from that disaster, Waxhaws, uh, and started to organize. And the more I looked into pensions, and the more I looked into letters, I tend to find out there's this fairly large battalion that is in service after Waxhaws that almost never, it's kind of glossed over and forgotten about. Uh, a lot of people, when they talk about the Virginia Continentals in the South, they kind of skip over Waxhaw. We go from Waxhaws and go straight to uh, the Virginia Line Battalions at Guilford, uh, and very rarely mention that there are actual Virginia Continentals in the Southern Army throughout 1780. Um, so I felt like this was a story that kind of needed to be told, a kind of forgotten unit in a sense. Who was Abraham Buford? 
Um, so in, in terms of personal information, it was a bit harder to track for him. Uh, what we do know is he is one of those Virginians that has been in since almost the beginning. Uh, he had originally started as a captain in the Culpeper Minute Battalion uh, in 1775. He was present at the Battle of Great Bridge, uh, one of the early victories of the war in Virginia. Uh, and after the Minute Service kind of gets uh, disbanded in late 1776, he goes into the regular army becomes part of the 14th Virginia later gets transferred to the 5th and 11th and 3rd and he gets moved around quite a bit as much as the Virginia line gets reorganized Uh, but by 1779 he is coming back to Virginia as part of this group of officers with Brigadier General Charles Scott to gather recruits uh, on the new recruiting laws that have been passed in late 1778 and bring them to the Northern Army. Uh, and there appears to be some confidence in the fact that the officers who are going south, uh, Buford was to take command of what kind of gets called the 3rd Virginia Detachment, alongside uh, some other officers, Robert Ballard, Lieutenant Colonel, and Thomas Ridley, another name that comes up with Buford's battalion later. Um, and Lieutenant Gustavus Wallace, one of the other officers, he mentions, when he talks about those three, he calls them a fine choir. Uh, so there is some confidence in these officers head south, but they were never, they never made it to the Northern army as they intended orders changed. Charleston is threatened. And so they are sent as reinforcements and Buford is takes them in the last battalion to go south. There are a lot of supply issues. So his group about 400 do not leave Virginia until late April, 1780. Uh, so they head south. They don't make it to Charleston. Some of them make it within about 40 miles of the city, uh, but they don't participate in the siege, so they're not captured. Buford then tries to fall back into North Carolina with South Carolina militia. He's trying to gather with other troops gathered in North Carolina, but uh, as history tells us, Lieutenant Colonel Banster Tarleton catches up to him. At Waxhaw's Tarleton demands to surrender, grants him uh, pretty, gives him lenient, pretty lenient terms uh, for surrender. Uh, but Buford, uh, along with his officers, being fairly stubborn, refused and kept going. And that's what leads into the Waxhaws, where he makes you know, several mistakes. That's you know, ordering his men to hold their fire against charging cavalry that would not have worked. His troops getting pretty much overran. And he escapes on horseback, though. Um, so out of that disaster is what's going to become Colonel Buford's battalion in 1780. Uh, pretty much begins with Colonel Buford and what's left of his men running for their lives, getting away from Tarleton's dragoons. John, talk about Buford's actions in the aftermath of the Waxhaws. So, again, this is where a lot of the later post-war 19th century records will try to say Buford's battalion is completely dissolved. We never saw him again. Uh, But the primary sources tell us different. Uh, Buford does make the effort to try to rally his men. Uh, a lot of them rally around uh, a state detachment, Virginia State Troops. They're led by Lieutenant Colonel Charles Porterfield, which consists of guys from Virginia State Garrison Regiment, State Artillery, and State Cavalry. Are They were supposed to be heading south. They kind of collect Buford and others. Buford does try to rally his men. He marches what remains of them, about 100 men. Uh, many of them, they admittedly said, without muskets. Uh, they're thrown away, trying to get away at Waxhaw to survive. And they rally Hillsborough, North Carolina. That's where 
Uh, General DeKalb, Baron DeKalb, will rally with his Maryland and Delaware troops. And Buford intended to stay in the South uh, originally, but he's only got around 100 men, again, many of them without muskets. They had lost most of their baggage, wax saws, so they're lacking supplies and everything else. So in reality, they're not in real, any real shape to do any sort of benefit to the Southern Army. Uh, so that's why we see mid-June, Colonel Buford tell to call, I'm going to march my Virginia battalion back to Virginia. We're going to gather supplies. Obviously, we're going to get new muskets, uh, preferably get some new recruits to bulk up the ranks. And Buford really had the intention, based off the call's letters, to come back to the Southern Army within a month. Uh, he didn't expect to be away from the Southern Army very long. But when Buford gets back to Virginia, he finds Virginia's in more confusion than he had left it two months before. Uh, and it's going to be well over a month before Buford and his men are back in the South, even help them. It's going to be well after uh, the Battle of Camden. What sort of challenges did Buford's men face as the war continued? Um, so one of the, the biggest challenges, uh, and this could be applied to a lot of Virginia regiments post uh, Charleston surrender of 1780, um, is organization. Um, so after 1780, even though Virginia has a list saying, oh, there's the 2nd Virginia, 6th Virginia, very rarely do all these regiments, well, number one, actually exist. Uh, number two, they rarely refer to themselves by that number in official records. Um, that's why we were in the confusion of Colonel Buford's battalion, Colonel John Green's battalion, et cetera. Um, so one thing Buford runs into is he's got to replace the officers because his officer corps was decimated at uh, the Battle of Waxhaw. Many of his officers killed, wounded, many of them captured. So he's got to reorganize with the bare minimum of what's left in Virginia at the time. Uh, and I didn't see that as well. You have issues where the uh, civil government uh, under Governor Jefferson, you have the military under General Peter Muhlenberg. Uh, you run into a lot of issues where there's communication breakdown uh, and trying to get supplies out to the men, uh, which leads into the next big issue is always going to be supplies. So number one, we talked about the last question, muskets being a fairly big issue. Uh, so Colonel Buford's battalion gets back to Virginia. They're fully in 10. There had been 2,000 some muskets sent to Virginia uh, just before they left. So there was full intention that when they arrived there, there would be enough muskets. Uh, we'll come to find out when Colonel Buford arrives at Chesterfield, Virginia, uh, he finds that there are almost no muskets for his Continentals. Uh, most of the muskets had been sent south and captured uh, in Charleston or they were being issued out to the Virginia militia that was being sent to uh, serve in North Carolina. So by that, sending all these militiamen south with these you know, military muskets that, in all honesty, most of them will be lost the Battle of Camden or right afterwards, uh, you leave Colonel Buford with men who are in Continental service, some of the more reliable troops you would have seen in the Southern Army, completely without muskets until early August. Uh, so that delays Buford's men for quite some time. Uh, of course, running through clothing as well, always an issue with Continental troops. Uh, Virginia, as part of the effort to try to uniform their men in some way, uh, it's issued out hunting shirts. So they did linen hunting shirts for the most part. It was August. August in the South is going to be hot. 
Um, so they were not considering making coats for the men just yet. They were only worried about getting what they need right now, what's going to make them survive in the summer in the Carolinas. Uh, and get, but that takes forever as well. That doesn't happen until mid-August uh, that we see the guys actually receiving this clothing. You get everything else to shoes, um, overalls, shirts, hats, everything else. And Buford had already had struggles getting shoes before he left in April 1780. So now it's kind of compounded in August. Um, so it's not really until they were getting ready to march, they finally get uniformed. Once they get to the South, they have no problem getting muskets. They, uh, in fact, they are described when they arrive being pretty well armed uh, and having enough muskets for the men. Uh, but what does continue to be an issue is clothing. Uh, once they get south to Virginia, you know, getting to Carolina, they're receiving very few supplies from the state of North Carolina. Um, and a lot of Virginia's supplies are bogged down. Uh, communication's not the best. Transportation's not the best. And it's going to take a while before supplies really get to the men. Uh, I think it's it's best said by one of the young soldiers in the regiment, uh, Moses Rollins of Culpeper County. He was 17 years old. He left. Uh, he joined the Southern Army at Hillsborough in the fall of 1780, uh, where he described he arrived with, quote, one suit of half-worn clothes uh, with only one shirt and no blanket. Uh, there was always a shortage of blankets in Colonel Buford's battalion as well. They had plenty of tents, apparently, but blankets were hard to come by. Uh, and so some of the men did receive brown regimental coats. Uh, that was much later. Apparently, they were not of the best construction, as we are told. Uh, they received then blue short jackets just for the Battle of uh, the Guilford Courthouse, but then they complained again. They fell apart. Uh, one soldier saying that they were falling apart at the sleeves because of the poor stitching and just holding the musket up to it continuously was making the jackets fall apart. So they are going through some of disease as well. Uh, some accounts of desertion uh, and just overall, they're really in the bad conditions. I mean, they, it's, it's arguably probably the worst time to have been in the Virginia continental line uh, at that point in the war. What were the reasons his force was so disorganized? Um, so guy goes back to partially of the, uh, lack of officers. Many of the officers had been captured at Charleston um, or, of course, killed, wounded, captured at Waxhaws. So there, for a while almost, until late seven, until the end of 1780, this lack of really a good officer corps to really manage with the men. Uh, the only thing they did have going for them is they did have a lot of veterans in the ranks, so that it helped to some extent. Uh, but you run into issue that there's really not a lot of organization in Virginia. Uh, there are the 1780 recruiting laws, which includes conscription, but it's not always well-defined. Some counties resist, so number of recruits is not really most helpful. Uh, and there's, even though General Muhlenberg tries his best, there's a lot of misunderstanding of where troops are supposed to go. Uh, so ideally, they should be heading to uh, Chesterfield Courthouse, where they will be supplied, drilled, and then marched as a company down to join Colonel Buford. Uh, but a lot of the guys just assumed that, hey, it's just kind of a head to the Carolinas as fast as you can. 
Um, so these guys will collect their recruits, you know, 30, 40 guys, and march them from, say, uh, Stanton, Virginia, Winchester, or anywhere else, and march them to Hillsboro. Uh, but they don't have muskets. They don't have clothing. They don't have anything they need to have. Uh, General Gates continues to complain about that, tells Governor Jefferson, he said, do not send me any more troops directly from the state unless they are uniform and supplied, because I have no supplies here as well. Uh, but that doesn't stop it. Jefferson really doesn't. He just kind of says, hey, don't do this anymore. And no one kind of listens. And the issue continues well into 1781. Uh, it's not until Nathaniel Green and Baron de Stuyven arrive in Virginia does that finally change. Um, and so you run to there's not the stock coordination between the officers. Um, and it's harder to track for Buford's battalion. Uh, because the officers are always getting moved around. You have men being pulled for service. Uh, Thomas Ridley complains. He finally gets his guys supplied, and then all of a sudden he's ready to march toward Charlotte, North Carolina, and they take 50 guys from his regiment to help the artillery. Uh, you also have the guys being pulled from the light infantry, serve uh, with Daniel Morgan, and the guys who fight the Battle of Cowpens. So it's really pulling from the strength of battalion. Buford gets to the point he threatened to resign. Uh, he said, you know, I, this is like the third time in a year and a half that I have, you know, had pretty much tried to form a regiment and no one has helped me and it's falling apart again. So until I get a full regiment, I'm ready to leave the army. Um, we don't know what came of that conversation, but all we know is he did not resign. He did stay in the Southern army for a little bit longer. So it's, just, it's very hard to track even just the personnel of the regiment. Uh, which kind of adds to the confusion of researching and trying to figure out where these guys are and how they're being referred to. Uh, but once you would connect common denominators, figuring out who the officers are, at least idea, it became a lot easier. But it, it's still going to sound disorganized no matter how you try to explain it. How did Buford's force replenish its ranks? Yeah, so Buford's battalion, um, Colonel Buford has quite a mixture of different individuals with his battalion, uh, particularly you have the veterans that kind of uh, form the nucleus of the regiment. So you have those who had escaped capture at Charleston. Uh, there's a handful that actually had escaped the uh, prison ships from Charleston and made their way north. Uh, you also have the survivors of Waxhaws, of course, about 100 of those who are placed in the ranks. Um, other veterans you have, uh, and some of that it's really interesting. I found the research was not expecting were the Virginia state troops. Um, so mostly men from the first Virginia state regiment that joined Colonel Buford's battalion. Uh, now they had been originally raised to only serve in Virginia unless given permission by the governor or the general assembly. Now, 1777, they were ordered to join Washington's army in Pennsylvania. They joined right after the battle of Germantown and they're told they're going to be there for a few months. Uh, they did not return to Virginia until January 1780. Uh, by that point, many of their three enlistments were, were running out. So there's only this small, about two, 300 veterans left. Uh, and of course, they're also without muskets. Again, going back to that supply issue. Uh, but those, those who can be armed, those who can be clothed, uh, rather than sending the whole 1st Virginia State Regiment, they're just sent to supplement again with Continental troops, again told, they're going to serve in the South, even though they were raised to serve in Virginia. Uh, they're going to go serve in the Carolinas for as long as needed. 
Uh, and for many of those men, they're, they're not going to come back to Virginia until the war is officially over three years later. Now, beyond those veterans, though, you have some new volunteers. Moses Rollins, who I talked about earlier, he was one of those. But Virginia is very worn out from the war. Uh, it provided quite a few Continental troops, but many of them now were sitting uh, as prisoners of war in Charleston. Uh, more of them up in New York as well from the, the uh, northern campaigns. They had witnessed pretty much destruction of Virginia Continental Line. Inflation was through the roof. Uh, so it's very hard to get recruits to join this Continental uh, Line from Virginia. So that's where the 1780 recruiting laws come in, where they require each county to give out one fifteenth of their militia to Continental Service for 18 months. Uh, they all get their quotas. And if they don't get fill that quota, then they'll be forced to draft men for 18 months service. Uh, so after October 1780, most of recruits who are coming into Buford's Battalion are going to be uh, some of the drafted men, also quite a few substitutes, men who are being placed, uh, taking the place of others in form of payments and other things like that. So by the time they get to the battlefield of Guilford Courthouse in March 1781, they're this, this interesting mixture of Continental veterans who had been in since 1776, the state troops uh, who had you know, been raised to serve in Virginia but had served in pretty much everywhere else but Virginia, some new volunteers, and drafted and substitute men, um, and all given from the records fairly young, well in their early 20s, uh, many of them who are under 20, joining in the ranks, uh, and that's including some of the veterans as well. Talk about their actions at Guilford Courthouse. Um, so this is definitely one of the more uh, interesting parts of this research that I was trying to figure out with Buford's battalion, uh, because a lot of records either leave them out, post-war records leave them out. Uh, a lot of battle maps will not mention them. Uh, I've had some people tell me that there were not, there was not three battalions. Buford's guys were not at Guilford. Uh, but the, the, the testimony of well over 100 veterans after the war, including those who had been uh, wounded and captured at the battle, clearly states that there there was some some for force, some remnant of that battalion on the field. Um, now, part of the issue, I think, why they kind of get forgotten is the fact that the namesake of their unit, Colonel Abraham Buford, is not a Guilford. Um, Buford had fallen ill in January 1781. Uh, he was on his way back to Virginia to recuperate. Uh, he had tried to kind of serve an administrative role for Nathaniel Green, uh, but health kind of deteriorated and ends up going back to Virginia. So at that point, the battalion's commanded by a guy named Major Thomas Ridley. Uh, Ridley had also been at Laxalt's Buford had survived, uh, and he commands what's left of the battalion, uh, which we have about 100, I think it was 120-some pensions and accounts that state, you know, these guys were at Guilford. There might have been more. Uh, I would say no more than 200 if I had to guess because uh, they were complaining that there were many of them in uh, sick at the time. Uh, now, they would have been, at that point, uh, one of two things I think happened. Number one, they may have fought as an independent unit, uh, or what I think is more likely, they cooperated with one of the other Virginia battalions, uh, given that most likely it would have been with Colonel John Green's Virginia battalion, because John Green had joined in 1781. They had already been marching together, it would have made the most sense that uh, with really being less senior, obviously, to Colonel Green, 
probably would have deferred command to him. They may have been operating together. Uh, but regardless, there are three battalions of Virginians fighting at Guilford Courthouse, and Colonel Buford's battalion was involved, uh, mostly fighting on the third line. So they would have been there to help repulse uh, British attacks there. Um, some of the men mentioned that they were some of the last off of the field, Colonel John Green. Uh, there's also quite a few who say they fight with uh, General, I mean, not General, sorry, uh, Captain Walt, Andrew Wallace's Light Company, as well as uh, Lieutenant or Captain Philip Huffman, depending on which count you read, and they kind of dispute his rank. But we know there's at least one, two, three, uh, about five, six companies, five companies on the field not including light infantry companies, um, some of them wounded as well. The light infantry under Captain Wallace, uh, they fight on the left flank of the line. They were originally on the first line where they fight for a little bit, uh, pull back to the second line, and they were kind of involved with sometimes, I think like the quote from Lawrence Babbage's book, The Battle Within a Battle. Uh, they're fighting on the left flank. Captain Andrew Wallace, whose brother had been killed, uh, commanded a company of Waxhaws. He is killed as well, leading the men, being the, uh, four, the third brother of that family to die in service at that point in the revolution. Uh, and they will eventually, that Lancashire company gets pushed off the field by, ironically, Tarleton's Legion, as well as the uh, Germans and the Von Boss Regiment, and battalion of guards. Uh, they will be pushed off the field fighting with General um, Light Horse Harry Lee's Legion, and those of his infantry. Philip Huffman, uh, his company on the right flank of the light infantry, was a little bit harder to research because there's not very much on Philip Huffman himself, uh, other than he had become an ensign in the battle, uh, ensign in the 8th Virginia Regiment, had been captured by Germantown. They come back in 1780, had led a detachment of recruits, joined Buford, and by by time of Battle Guilford, he is fighting with light infantry right alongside Captain Robert Kirkwood's Delaware Continentals, um, where they kind of get called Colonel Washington's light infantry. So they serve right alongside the Continental Dragoons under Colonel William Washington. Uh, and similarly, they fight in the front first line. Once that breaks, they fall to the right flank of the second line, uh, mostly fighting against light infantry from the guard, British guards and alongside German Jaegers. Um, so they fought with, as one as Sergeant Major William Seymour says, uh, they fought with almost incredible bra- bravery. Uh, now, these men are eventually forced back to the third line where they rally on them, again, on the Virginians. By this point, though, Huffman uh, was killed. Uh, shortly fight, the fighting began on the second line. Uh, it's not very clear who would have taken control at that point, but the Virginians do mention that they go back, they rally. Uh, and there's some of the last off the field. In total, there's about 111 officers and men who said they've been present at the battle, of which uh, 22 of those are be counted amongst the killed, wounded, and captured of that battle, uh, which is a rather larger number than I was expecting when I was doing the research for it. Uh, but again, it's very clearly, they are all on the field. Uh, it's very hard, in my mind, to dispute the fact that this battalion was not at Guilford, uh, just a matter of figuring out where exactly on the field was the main battalion besides light infantry. John, why did this force disband? Um, so like I, I said earlier, the battalion had kind of fallen apart in strength. I would estimate, uh, given from the pension accounts and other accounts, I would say there was probably no more than 200 fit for service at that point. 
there's about approximately 500 who would have served in the battalion based off records. Um, and General Nathaniel Green had always wanted to reorganize the Virginians the moment he came south. Uh, he mentioned it in a letter in March 1781 when he's writing, you know, there's another Virginia battalion coming together. He says, once the third one, again, the hint that there was three battalions on the field, the third one comes back from Virginia. You know, I want to reorganize them into two regiments. Um, he does that finally about three weeks after the Battle of Guilford. In general orders, we see Brigadier General Isaac Huger, who commanded them at the Battle of Guilford, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Campbell, Lieutenant Colonel Samuel Halls. Uh, they're going to form, quote, form several detachments of Virginia troops in two regiments, eight companies each. Um, so that's where we see Buford's Battalion kind of officially end as a unit. Um, so most of the men, including Major Ridley, who commanded them again at Guilford, uh, they will be consolidated with the companies of Colonel John Green's battalion and become known as the 1st Virginia Regiment when they are led by Lieutenant Colonel Richard Campbell. Um, some of the other guys get transferred to the 2nd, not as many. Uh, they're also going to issue the state troops because technically they are not uh, they believe that they're not on Continental service. Um, the Continental Army saw it very differently uh, and pretty much took the state troops, made them Continentals, and told the state officers they can go back to Virginia now. We don't need you. Um, so they're going to go help out there. Uh, now, Major Ridley, interesting enough, had been a supernumerary officer, so he was technically not, you know, didn't have to stay in the field, but General Green needed field officers. So he convinced Major Green to stay on uh, with the Virginians until during the siege in 96. Uh, Toward the end of May 1781, Ridley finally goes back to Virginia. Um, so what remains of the men are going to serve First Virginia. They're going to fight the Battle of Hopkirk Hill. They're going to fight at Siege of 96. They're going to fight notably at the Battle of Utah Springs. Um, interesting enough, the, the last official mention we see of Colonel Buford's regiment is in the execution of a deserter, John Blackburn of Colonel Buford's regiment in the orderly book for Nathaniel Green, was tried for desertion, joining the enemy, and bearing arms against the United States. Um, Blackburn had pleaded guilty to desertion, but not guilty to the rest. However, the court martial felt him guilty on all charges, and he's hung along with two deserters from the Maryland line in May 1781. So despite, though, at that point, there being no official mention of Buford's battalion, these guys can continue to serve. Some of them will remain serving all the way until the summer of 1783 when they finally return from the Carolinas and are discharged at Richmond, Virginia. How does this article help us understand the Revolutionary Era better? Um, so I think this helps to understand uh, just the confusion that comes in the Southern Army after Charles in 1780, uh, all the way to the end of the war, uh, there's a lot of confusion, especially with Virginia troops in the Carolinas in the later part of the war. Um, so a lot of misconceptions, a lot of misunderstandings. Um, so I, I would think this article is going to help kind of tell that story. Um, it's, it's to many people I've explained this before and I said, you explained it well, but it's, it's still confusing. And that's, I think, the definition for Virginia line after 1780, honestly. It's just a lot of confusion. Uh, but I'm hoping this will at least add some clarity, um, give some idea of, you know, the Virginia troops, Continentals, 
despite not being in their official numbered regiments as they had been early in the war, uh, they're still in the field. These guys are still determined to stick on till the end. Um, at least most of them are, and they're going to be kind of a com- very big component of the Southern Army, right alongside the Maryland line, and of course the Delaware line as well. Uh, and they form a very important uh, part of General Green's army. I also really hope this article uh, gives a voice to what I consider really to be a forgotten regiment, a forgotten unit of Virginia during the American Revolution, and hopefully uh, will shed more light on, despite the fact that they start in confusion and disaster and waxalls, in the end, um, they persevere, they hold out to the end, um, and they continue to stay in the field, which I think matches perfectly with the uh, quotation part of the state motto that was on their flag, the big loss at Waxhaw, preservando, which means persevere. So I think that's the best description of Colonel Buford and his men. John Settle, thanks again. All right, thank you for having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.